Enterprise Visual Hall VRP is a portable vision testing platform that includes visual fields, acuity, color vision testing, pupillometry, and extraocular motility. The visual leverages virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and augmented technologies to enable eye care providers to test for and monitor common eye diseases. Visit alleyes.com for more information. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacU Health with Micromycel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and micromycel technology. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe MySight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Do your patients know what presbyopia is? There are people who are afraid of the press. Have you talked to your patients about multifocal contact lenses? I've heard the bifocal, but not right, multifocal. Not multifocal. Do you need help with your multifocal strategy? Learn more at the conclusion of this episode. Hello and welcome to the Open Your Eyes podcast. I'm Dr. Kerry Gelb, the host of the documentary, Open Your Eyes. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. Also, please leave comments. Great news, you can now watch our full-length documentary, Open Your Eyes, on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube movies and shows. Glaucoma is one of the leading causes of irreversible blindness, and the prevalence is increasing. Elevated intraocular pressure, or eye pressure, is recognized as a major risk factor for the development and progression of glaucoma and lowering intraocular pressure or eye pressure is currently the only documented method of treating glaucoma. But until recently, experts didn't even know if lowering IOP to prevent glaucoma progression actually worked. Numerous worldwide clinical trials have been conducted to answer this question, along with the aim of improving glaucoma diagnosis and treatment. Today's guest, New York City optometrist, Dr. Richard Madonna, studies and teaches clinical trial learnings to both students and practicing eye physicians. Dr. Rich Madonna currently serves as professor and chair of the Department of Clinical Education and director of the Office of Continuing Professional Education at the SUNY College of Optometry. Dr. Madonna is well published and has co-authored many books and chapters. Clinically, his practice at the University Eye Center is limited to glaucoma. Dr. Madonna, Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Dr. Gelb. It's a pleasure. I really appreciate the, the uh, invitation. You know, we've known each other for many years. We've been friends for many years. And, you know, this topic of understanding studies, clinical studies relating to glaucoma has uh, been a topic I've been fascinated for, with for many, many years. Tell me, why are clinical trials important? 
Yeah, I think, I think there's probably two main reasons. Number one, it provides us with the evidence base we need so that we know that our management decisions are based in fact and not in you know, anecdote or fiction and so forth. But I think, and, and you touched on this a little bit, one of the other important reasons is if we go back to the late 80s, let's say, when we didn't have these large scale randomized clinical trials in glaucoma available to us, insurers started to ask the question, well, we're paying you to do all of these tests to study whether glaucoma is present or whether it's progressing, yet we don't have any real good evidence that what you're doing to treat glaucoma actually does something, even though we've used medicine to lower pressure, and then at that point in time, lasers to lower pressure for a long period of time, we still didn't have that great evidence to tell us that it was actually useful. So that's where many of these clinical trials that showed the utility of lowering intraocular pressure was actually useful, became really handy to say to insurers, yeah, what we're doing makes sense, and we really do have to do this testing. So I ask, always ask the question, what if the answer was actually no, and it didn't show that lowering pressure meant anything, then everything would be a crapshoot. And, you know, we wouldn't be doing the testing that we do or the treatment that we do. So really important stuff. You know, it's, it's really interesting because if, the, if it would have came out that lowering intraocular pressure didn't work, you know, we would have had, you know, almost 100 years of treatment uh, that we've been doing that would have been worthless. All that pilocarpine would have been, uh, it would have been used for nothing. So, yeah. You know, and I think before we go over the clinical trials, I think it's important to note that a lot of the clinical trials were done before OCT and, and, some said. The, and some of the newer medications that we use. But in a way, it's not really the point. Because the point is we want to know if lowering pressure in a lot of these trials worked. Yeah, I think the big thing with no OCT is OCT is more sensitive than certainly in eyeballing optic nerves, even stereoscopically, OCT is going to be more sensitive in detecting progression. So when we look at progression rates in some of the studies, we might anticipate that the progression rates would have been higher if OCT were available. That said, you know, when we're looking at quality of life relationships in glaucoma, we're really often looking at visual fields. And that hasn't really changed all that much in the last you know, number of years. I know when we worked together back at SUNY, you know, we were doing a lot of Goldman fields, or we had the, we were around in the early days of Humphrey visual field analyzers where we had no statistical analysis, where we were, it was kind of a crapshoot trying to determine actually what we were looking at, looking at rather. So, you know, that's where we stand right now, but I think your point is well taken about OCTs. I remember when we used to do, do Goldman Fields, whoever got the short straw had to go and do the Goldman Fields. You spend the morning looking into the <laughs> tube and listening to it, dinging buttons and so forth. Probably half the practitioners out there don't even know what we're talking about, but that's yeah, a It's a long time ago. So let's start with the first and one of the most important uh, clinical trials out of Washington uh, University, St. Louis, conceived in the 1990 by Dr. Michael Cass and his team, the Ocular Hypertensive Treatment Study. And it really wanted to know, first we want to know what is, before we uh, go into it, we want to define ocular hypertension. And we want, and, and the goal of the trial really does lowering eye pressure uh, prevent glaucoma, someone has eye pressure, but they don't have damage, 
Does it prevent glaucoma? So tell us what ocular hypertension is. Yeah, by, by definition, I think most clinicians would agree, ocular hypertension is eye pressure greater than two standard deviations from the mean, which is greater than 21, without sign of structural or functional, functional change consistent with glaucoma. So in other words, no damage, yet high pressure. And you know, this is a very interesting study because it went on for 20 years. How often do we see studies that went on for 20 years? Absolutely true. The 20 year olds came out within the last couple of years. I don't think it's really penetrated very well into, as we know, studies take numerous years before practitioners actually recognize the results. So I don't, I think there's very low penetrance of this study so far, of the 20 year study so far. So what do we look at in the study, who was incorporated in the study, what was the pressure and what tests were done? Sure. Um, so the study was aimed at ocular hypertensives as defined in the study of pressures between 21 and 32 in one eye um, and uh, I'm drawing a blank on the other eye. 24 and 32 in one 24 eye. and 32 in the other eye. I've talked yeah. about this about a thousand times. Um, right. So anyway, high pressures, no glaucoma damage as, as detected by the people in the reading center. So in other words, we had actual bodies looking at stereoscopic optic nerves and assessing whether they were normal or glaucomatous and looking at visual fields and assessing whether they were normal or glaucomatous. So based on the expert readers, there was no damage, yet the patient had pressures, as we said, between uh, 24 and 32 and 21 and 32. So to understand the studies, you have to understand a little bit about visual fields. So if it's okay, if you could share your screen and just review uh, the important parts of the visual field for our audience. Now, some of our so audience- Get this done. Yeah, take your time. Uh, some of the audience is uh, from the vision community, but we also have some people from the public. A lot of the public watch this and after we release this in the first week or two, we'll have between 20 and maybe 40,000 people watching this. Right. So a lot of people yeah. are gonna watch this. So, let's, so if you could go over this and uh, just give us uh, a, a lesson on understanding how to interpret a visual field. Sure. The first thing I, I do, of course, is make sure I've got the right patient and it's blocked out here. And you know, that sounds obvious, but, and I make sure that I have the right test. So I'm doing a central 24-2. Can you see my mouse? Oh, yes, I can. Okay, so central 24-2 visual field. Uh, next, I wanna check to the reliability indices. So we see here that there were no fixation losses in 16 checks. I wanna check for false positives. In other words, the happy clicker, somebody was clicking when there's no light there, which is probably the best detector of reliability and look for false negatives. So in other words, a light is presented when uh, at a point, a very bright light is presented at a point that's already been shown, the patient has already shown that they can detect light at that point. So that would be a false negative. We also look at the gaze tracker here, which is looking at excursions of the eyes without going into all the details. Um, quickly here, we have the absolute values of each of the points. So for instance, this point here um, is at 27 decibels. Remember these are decibels. Um, and look at the grayscale. Some people say, don't look at the grayscale. I think the grayscale is useful. Just a quick look at this one tells me this patient has a relatively big uh, blind spot. We expect that the field will get a little bit darker toward the periphery because the points in the periphery are less sensitive than those 
uh, centrally. So there's a little less sensitivity here superiorly, which could be trial frame, could be lid, or it could be real. And the same thing here in this uh, nasal area, which of course is an important area for glaucoma. Um, I also like to look um, in this region, which a couple of things here, the glaucoma hemifield test. If I backtrack for a second, I always want to ask myself the question, why am I doing this visual field? Is it to detect glaucoma or to look for glaucoma progression? If we're looking at glaucoma detection, we really want to know, we want to separate normal from abnormal. And we know if there's one single index on this visual field that best separates normals from abnormals, it's the glaucoma hemifield test. If we remember that glaucoma is an asymmetric, a relatively asymmetric uh, disease, meaning it's asymmetric, it starts in one eye before the other eye, and it also starts one hemifield before the other hemifield. So the glaucoma hemifield test uh, um, compares clusters in the superior hemifield versus those in the inferior hemifield. And then it uses an algorithm, and if it, if it goes beyond the threshold of that algorithm, then you'll get a message that says outside normal limits, or it'll say normal, or it'll say reduced sensitivity, or it'll say borderline. So this is an outside normal limits field, which would make me sit up and take notice that there's a significant difference between the superior and inferior hemifields. By the way, I just realized I'm looking to the side because I have two screens. I'm not looking directly at the camera. Oh, you're doing fine. But I'll come back. Um, the VFI is a proprietary index uh, from Humphrey, and this is a Humphrey field analyzer field. Obviously, there are others. Um, and this is a proprietary index that puts a single number from 0 to 100 based on the sensitivity of the field. And I'll just leave it at that. The mean deviation is the, the average deviation of each of the points from as compared to the reference database. And the pattern standard deviation is the average deviation of each of the individual points. So it's almost, a, it's the standard deviation of, of each point as compared to the baseline. Finally, if we look here at the total deviation, the total deviation is comparing each of the individual points to baseline. So if you look here at this one, I think it says minus three. So that point as compared to the age matched reference database is three dBs less sensitive than expected. And then the pattern deviation takes into account the height of the hill of vision. So this hill of vision is depressed. The mean deviation is minus six. So it kind of takes that into account and boosts the hill of vision looking for patterns of loss within the visual field. And we could see that we have a cluster of points here, here, and here. And many of these points have been have been eliminated because the hill of vision was boosted to look for greater patterns of loss within the visual field. So that's kind of my quick and dirty overview of looking at an individual visual field test. Uh, just a quick question on a lot of these uh, studies, they look at, they use mean deviation and pattern standard deviation in the studies. Right. So mean deviation, what is, would you say, in the normal range or pattern, stevia, de, pattern uh, deviation, what would you say is in well, the Theoretically, range? it's zero because, you know, everything else is a deviation. It can be plus. You know, those of us who do a lot of glaucoma and probably most people in practice, because they're only doing fields on patients who might be at risk, the mean deviation is also is a minus number. 
because it's less sensitive than expected. But of course, there are people out there who are more sensitive than expected. We're just not typically doing those patients or doing visual fields on those patients. But in glaucoma, if we look at um, mean deviation as a metric, typically milder early glaucoma is often defined as a mean deviation between zero and minus six, intermediate glaucoma or moderate glaucoma between minus six and minus 12, and then severe or advanced glaucoma greater than minus 12. So, you know, it's, it's sometimes difficult to use MD as a metric because, you know, plenty of normals might be minus one. Additionally, media opacities will lower the mean deviation. So, you know, somebody can have no glaucoma, but a cataract and might have a mean deviation of minus four. Doesn't mean they have glaucoma. The pattern standard deviation may be more useful in some sense because we're taking that hill of vision drop into account and removing it and therefore looking for patterns of loss that might be more consistent with glaucoma. You'll notice there's no plus or minus on the pattern standard deviation. It's just a number because it is a standard deviation from you know, the, the reference database at each individual point. And do you use a number of around two, up to two as being normal or? On the pattern deviation? Yeah, on the pattern. Actually, you know, I tend to look at p-values. So you can see here, the p-value is less than 0.5, telling me that only one in 200 normals will have a pattern standard deviation of that number. So that's what I tend to look at more than the absolute number. You know, back in the day when you and I first started and we had standard fluctuation as part of the numbers, then we had to do a lot of the calculations ourselves. Like we sometimes used to say, if the standard fluctuation was three, then a point that was depressed by six might be a useful. We used to, I, I think, you know, one thing we would do is double the fluctuation. We don't have to do that anymore because we have lots of of, of reference databases available to us. Well, I, I appreciate that. All right, let's get back to the, uh, the study. So let and, me stop my share. And that's out of the way. Uh, and I really thank you for that because that kind of sets up the, uh, the clinical trials. Let me get that off my screen uh, just to make sure, you know what? Yeah, get that out of there. Okay, and let me just do one other thing with my screen. Good, I think I'm good to go. Beautiful. All right. So let's look at the risk factors for, uh, according to the OAT study for primary open angle glaucoma. What, what, would, what were some of the risk factors that they found? Yeah. So just, just to backtrack, you know, what the study did was look to determine whether patient, whether, whether to compare treatment to lower IOP versus no treatment and compare the differences between the two and essentially showed that treatment did lower the risk of progression to glaucoma in one eye over four years. So not unexpectedly, lowering the pressure reduced the risk. Um, but I think another important point is, although 9.5% of the patients who were treated um, actually, um, I'm sorry, 4.4% of the patients who were treated developed glaucoma over five years. 9.5% um, 
of the untreated patients went on. So 99.5% did, 91.5% uh, did not go on to develop glaucoma over four years. I might have messed up the math a little bit, but I think the, the important concept to remember is a lot of patients who were treated um, didn't go on to develop glaucoma, but a lot of patients who were untreated didn't go on to develop glaucoma. That's what I really wanted to say. Yeah, and, and, and I think it's 4.4% of, of the treatment group went on to, to develop glaucoma because in this, in this study, the average lowering of the pressure was about 22%. Right, 22%. So the treatment group still some 4% or 4, you know, close to 4.5%. Uh, not, not surprising. And 10 per, close nine and a half or close to 10% didn't progress. So, uh, so, so then it begs the question, maybe we didn't lower the pressure enough. That's, that's a possibility because they, the only thing they were looking for was to lower the pressure by 20% or to get it less than 24. So it is possible that more, it's likely more aggressive treatment would reduce the risk of progression, but at what cost, you know, side effect cost, monetary cost, patient adherence cost. So it was not an aggressive treatment, but probably makes sense to not treat aggressively in a group of patients who don't have um, obvious glaucoma. And as, and, and as we go through, ages will help answer some of those questions. Yeah. So, but sticking with this, uh, after, uh, so we learned some other things in this study. One was uh, central corneal thickness. Everybody bought pachymeters after the OATS was published in 2002. So I think what, what really came out of OATS besides what we already said, the treatment versus the no treatment, was that there were some risk factors that were incredibly important in predicting who is most at risk for glaucoma development. And this is where central corneal thickness really came into play. Before 2002, not many people had pachymeters unless they were using them for contact lenses and things like that. But we found that central corneal thickness and more specifically thinner central corneas um, were more highly associated with the development of glaucoma. For every 40 micron thinning of central corneal thickness, there was a 71% uh, increase in the, in the risk of developing glaucoma. Another com comment about central corneal thickness and hypertension, ocular hypertension that's extremely important is to remember that although we know that the average central corneal thickness is what, 545 microns on ultrasonic pachymetry, but in the OAT study, the average central corneal thickness was in the 570s. So in this cohort of patients, it wasn't for, for 545. It was, let's say 575, just for the sake of argument. Um, and that's important to remember. So when you see an ocular hypertensive patient who has an average corneal thickness of let's say 545, that's actually a thin cornea for ocular hypertensives. And those patients are actually in the highest risk tertile of patients. When they looked at these, they divided the patients into three tertiles of patients, less than 555, more than 588, and then those in the middle. So people with average corneas were actually in the highest risk group, the thinnest of the corneas. Very important to remember that.
And I think one of the things from the trial, if the pachymetry was, the corneal thickness was less than 555, but the pressure was over 26, We're at, there was an over 35% chance of getting uh, glaucoma. And, and that's dead on. And additionally, remember, it's not a continuous variable. So the 550 people are in that group and the 500 are in that group, but those with 500 are way higher than a risk of 36%. You know, so if you have a pressure of 30, let's say, and a corneal thickness of 510, you're at very high risk of developing glaucoma in the next five years and at least one eye, which is what the oats looked at. And if you look at the 10-year, the, the, the if you look at the 10-year the data, the treatment group started to progress. And that, that's kind of, uh, you know, upsetting in a way. Well, you know, both groups progressed. What the 10-year data was, why the 10-year data was important was because they asked the question, is there a penalty for not treating patients? So we knew that after five years, there was a, this difference between the treatment group and the untreatment group, 9.9 .9 versus 4.4, um, 9.5 versus 4.4%. We knew that. So the question was at 10 years, did the group who weren't treated get penalized for not being treated? So what they did was at about seven years, just about everybody in the treatment group was treated. And they showed that at 10 years, the slope of progression for both the treatment group and the non-treatment group were exactly the same. So if you say, I'm going to watch this patient, let's say you watch them for seven years and you say, you know what, I better start treatment on them. It looks like they might be progressing. And you start treatment, then their risk of continuous progression is about the same as if you had started treating them from the beginning. So that was heartening because then we realized that, okay, if we delay treatment and then start treatment, we would not be penalized by having a greater risk of progression later on. That's what was important about OATS 2, which was 10-year-olds. And the second thing, if I can continue about OATS sure. 2, that was exceedingly important was if we stratified our risk into low risk, meaning less than about 5% or so, high risk greater than about 15% or so, and those in the middle, and that risk stratification was based upon central the five major risk factors, central corneal thickness, intraocular pressure, age, pattern standard deviation, or, um, or, or loss variance if you're using an octopus, um, and uh, vertical cup to disc ratio. You can stratify risk by percentage, and you can do that using a risk calculator. Um, the patients in the lowest risk group less than five or actually 6% in the study, there was essentially no benefit of treating those patients. And I, that's crucial because if you look at the patient who has the pressure of, let's just pick 28, you know, thinking back to the days when we started, you know, 28, we really sit up and take notice. But if that patient with 28 has a corneal thickness, let's say of 600 and has a pattern deviation of, you know, one point I don't know, 1.4, and they're 70 years old, um, or let's say 50 years old, 
their risk is extremely low. And Oates too told us that treating those patients does nothing. We're probably treating ourselves. We're making ourselves more comfortable with that 28 pressure than doing anything for the patient. And I think that's critical. So when Oates came out, I found myself taking more, pay, almost as many patients, at least ocular hypertensive patients, off medicine than I was putting on medicine because I think they were overtreated. And how about the 20-year data for OH3? Yeah, so the 20-year data is interesting. So the 20-year data came out at the end of 2020. And I think it told us sort of the same lessons. So some of the things we learned from the 20-year data was the rate of progression to glaucoma in both the treatment and non-treatment group actually accelerated a little bit so that the slope of the line went up in both groups, although there was a, still a clear separation between treatment group and medical group. So that's important to remember as patients get older and time goes by, we have to keep that, uh, keep that, take that into account. In fact, you know, if we look at all comers, all ages, uh, African-Americans, and just look at everybody, more than 40% of the patients from the original Oates cohort who are still alive, went on to develop um, glaucoma. So that's important to remember, but only 25% of them had field loss. So only 25% of the patients actually showed field loss. Most of them showed changes in their optic nerves. So that's important because what are we really trying to do in managing glaucoma? We're looking to prevent loss of vision-related quality of life. And although we can look at studies where even in patients who don't have visual field loss, there's probably changes in glaucoma patients in, you know, um, um, uh, uh, driving and motor vehicle accidents and reflexes and a number of other things. But if we just look at visual field loss, the majority of patients didn't develop field loss. The other thing that came out of OATS3 is, again, if we look at solely at that low risk group, again, we don't, and for the most part, don't need to treat those patients. And in fact, they're just about more, the patients in the original cohort were probably more apt to die than to develop visual field loss in that very low risk group. So to me, the take home is, let's identify who is high risk and who is low risk. The high risk group, I think you wanna treat them and perhaps treat them more aggressively than in OATS as you mentioned before. The flip side is the low risk group probably doesn't deserve treatment and only deserves watchful waiting. And if they're one of the few in that group that do develop progressive type glaucoma or progression to glaucoma, then treat them accordingly. And the ones in the middle, you have the conversation. So I think OATS3 adds to that. And who are the high risk? Who's in the high risk group? So the high risk group would be the people with higher pressures, thinner central corneas, um, higher pattern standard deviation to start with, and larger cup to disc ratio. So some people may say, well, they may have had early glaucoma even at the beginning of the trial. And then older patients. But the flip side of that is, and this is one of those things you have to think about when you think about ocular hypertensives, Whereas the older patient is more apt to progress, they're also more apt to live fewer years. So it's actually sometimes the younger patient who is, at least according to the risk calculator, 
less apt to progress, you may treat them because we know that time will increase their risk of actually going on to develop glaucoma. So that's where the, the, the art becomes more important. That's, you know, that's where the thinking clinician comes in. MacU Health, your science-born and tested solutions for visual performance, macular degeneration, and dry eye syndrome. New products coming soon. Embrace the science. The All Eyes Visual VRP is a portable vision testing platform that includes visual fields, acuity, color vision testing, pupillometry, and extraocular motility. The visual leverages virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and augmented technologies to enable eye care providers to test for and monitor common eye diseases. Visit alleyes.com for more information. So the risk calculator, is that something that is that you still use and are you teaching the students the risk calculator? Yeah, I think we do. But, you know, I, the risk calculator is available online. You just put in Washington University risk calculator, OATS calculator, and it comes up and it's an app. I think you do have to pay for it now, but it's, you know, buck 99, I think maybe the last time I looked. And all it is, is it's a calculator where you put in the, uh, five major risk factors and it tells you the risk of the patient developing glaucoma in the next five years. So that just allows me to stratify the patient's risk. I'm not gonna use that as a be all and end all, but I think it does help me put the patient in one of the categories. And I know I always mention it to my students because I think it does have utility and it has utility with the patient as well. Mrs. Jones, you are in the lowest risk group, although your pressure's high, and you know, I know your husband has glaucoma because he had high pressures. I don't think you need to be treated because you were in this low risk group. Or the flip side, you're in the high risk group. And although we don't see any glaucoma damage, I think it behooves you to be treated. Do you think there's a, there's a problem with the risk calculator because it doesn't include OCT? Uh, great, great question, because it does not. And so I think if, as, as we briefly mentioned before, I think if we utilized OCT in any of these studies, OCT is more sensitive. So more patients are gonna be identified as having glaucoma. Now, some of them would probably be identified before the beginning of the study. So they wouldn't even have entry into the study. But the flip side is those that were normal at the beginning would be more apt to be detected earlier in the study. So we may, yeah, we, we may pick up more patients that way. And these numbers would be skewed higher. So OATS three, although not published yet, did include OCT in the later parts of the study. So we'll see what that tells us when that data becomes available. And how did they include OCT? I'm not 100% sure how they did it. So there's some ancillary studies with, with photography we, was used and something we call trans hemorrhages or disc hemorrhages. Yep. Can you elaborate on that a little bit, how that could be helpful? Yeah, trans hemorrhages we know are exceedingly important in detecting progression. You know, if you get a Drance hemorrhage, it's an increased risk of progression. You get two Drance hemorrhages, you know, it, 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 the risk goes up. It's kind of like herpes simplex, if you will, keratitis, where, you know, one recurrence uh, leads to greater recurrences and so forth. So we know that if we have, if, if, we, if we have the presence of Drance hemorrhage, then we know that there is a greater risk of progression. Good way to think of it is Drance hemorrhages are, um, are excellent signs of past, present, or future progression. That's always the way I think about 
trans hemorrhages. And not surprisingly, in the OAT study, it was shown that trans hemorrhages were useful in detecting patients who would progress. I'm trying to think if there was anything else. Oh, and the other one was the- Photography. Uh, uh, how, how, how good are doctors, which is better, photographs or the doctor at detecting uh, changes in the optic nerve? Yeah, you know, hemorrhages. looking at stereoscopic disc photos is, oh, in terms of disc hemorrhages, there's no question that photography is the most sensitive way to find them. Yeah, and I, I, I'm glad you brought up that point because, you know, we're seeing many fewer photographs being taken these days because of the uh, advent of OCT, but I think it behooves us to periodically at least take disc photos because it's much more, disc photos are much more sensitive in detecting um, trans hemorrhages than our ophthalmoscopic view. That, that said, if we're not taking photos, I still always want to look at the optic nerve at each visit, because even though my sensitivity may not be great at detecting um, trans hemorrhages, but there is a sensitivity there and I may detect a trans hemorrhage, which might've been missed if I didn't look or would have been missed if I didn't look. And I just wanna bring up that the European uh, glaucoma protection study uh, agreed with the OAT study for finding the same risk factors. For the risk factors, not necessarily the results of the study itself. It's kind of interesting. They used dorazolamide, and there was a there was a reduction in pressure with dorazolamide, but there was also a reduction, a fairly substantive reduction in pressure with placebo. Um, so some of the results are a little different in terms of reducing risk of glaucoma. But in those patients who did progress, the risk factors were the same. And in fact, if you look at the risk calculators, it really comes from OATS and the European Glaucoma Prevention Study. So I'm glad you brought that up. So as we move on uh, to the early Manavest glaucoma trial out of Sweden, before we do, just give us the, the bottom line from the OATS. Uh, we have uh, five-year, 10-year, 20-year data. What's the bottom line at, yeah. that people should remember? Yeah, my take home from OATS is to stratify risk according to the five major uh, risk factors identified in OATS, central corneal thickness, age, pattern standard deviation, vertical cup to disc ratio, and intraocular pressure. And you can best stratify risk by using a risk calculator and try to identify which patients go into the low risk, medium risk, and high risk group more than likely, you will treat the high-risk group even in the absence of glaucoma damage. You should follow the people in the low-risk group. And in the moderate-risk group, you, you know, you kind of work with the patient. Um, so that, to me, is the biggest take-home from OATS. Um, yeah, and you know, I think that kind of summarizes the whole thing in you know, one, one package. Well, thank you for that. So let's talk about this study out of Sweden, the early manifest glaucoma trial, where they actually wanted to see if uh, someone is diagnosed with glaucoma and whether or not treatment or no treatment worked. Uh, so you have glaucoma and you're in the non-treatment group. Uh, this is, a, this is an, an, interesting, an interesting study. Give it us really a little background on this. Yeah, well, you, you, you said one of the most important parts of it is it was done in Sweden. It's a National Institute study, 
but the treat, but the, um, the, the um, study group was in Sweden because in Sweden they allowed there to be a group of patients with manifest glaucoma identified as having glaucoma damage, but not treated. We would not, we were not able to do that in the United States. So you can, you know, you can think about that one any way that you want. But it's an interesting study because it came out of a very, very large pool of patients in community uh, glaucoma screening, many, many thousands of patients. But after inclusion, inclusion, exclusion criteria, ended up with, I think, about 255 patients. Is that the number? Um, but half of those patients were, were identified as having glaucoma, but not treated. And the beauty of that is that you then got natural history information. So you were able to follow patients without treatment and said, you know, what does glaucoma really do here? And I think that was um, a, a, a genius in some ways to have that group. Obviously, there was a lot of scare regarding taking a group of patients and saying they have glaucoma, but not treating them. But that, I think, really made this such an incredibly valuable um, study. And it was a pretty equal amount of people, 129. Yeah, versus 129 versus 126. 126. Yeah, so essentially the same number in each group. And the, every three months, they would examine these people and look at the optic nerve. They would do optic nerve photos and a 30-2 visual field. Again, no, no OCT. No OCT. And they followed them for four years. And who was included in the study? So excluded and included. Yeah, so the inclusion criteria, all the patients were between 50 and 80 years of age. So that's the hot, you know, hot time for glaucoma. And they had to have repeatable visual field defects to be in the study. So that was important. So they had to show that they truly had um, glaucoma. And I thought it was interesting because they had open angle, uh, pseudoexfoliation, and I believe normal tension. Is that right? right? Normal right. It's really important. So you're running kind of the gamut of open angle patients, including, as we know, and the studies show, really the most risky open angle glaucoma patients are those with um, exfoliative glaucoma. And if you remember, Sweden is an area where exfoliative glaucoma is, is um, hyperendemic, if you will. So those patients were also in the study and they were in some ways outliers because it's such an aggressive glaucoma and that came through nicely in the study. The exclusion criteria were essentially people who had bad stuff. The pressures were high, they had um, lots of field loss or threatening fixation, um, they had other causes of field loss. So those patients were excluded from the study. Not surprising. And they wanted to get the the pressure lowered by about 25%. And what medication yeah, so, okay. or did they use to yeah. get it to 25% in the study? Yeah, we should backtrack for a second. For in the OAT study, they had a target pressure. The target pressure, which, which we said before, was a 20% reduction in pressure and a pressure less than 24. And you can get there any way you want it. When OATS started, there were no prostaglandins, so most patients were on beta blockers. And then when prostaglandins came out, they were on prostaglandins. In the EMGT, they weren't worried about the, um, about the target pressure. 
everybody got the same treatment. And that's one of the criticisms of the study because everybody got 360 degree ALT plus betaxolol twice a day. How when was the last time you prescribed betaxolol? Yeah, 25 years ago. Yeah, yeah, probably right around then. So everybody got the same treatment. So the downside of that is that's a treatment probably nobody gets. The upside of that was we didn't look at a target pressure. We looked at how effective that treatment might be. And you know, we looked at the average lowering and then looked at progression in that overall pool of patients who were treated. So it's a different approach than the OAT study where there was an actual target pressure. If you could explain ALT just for the people watching. Um, if we think about laser trabeculoplasty, which is the use of laser energy to increase trabecular outflow, that's essentially what laser trabeculoplasty does. So ALT is argon laser trabeculoplasty. As you know, argon laser is a heat-based laser. So essentially you're using heat to, to cause change in the trabecular meshwork. So the advantages of ALT was that, you know, you get remodeling of the meshwork, which increased outflow. The downside was you actually got heat-based damage in the laser, in the uh, meshwork, which probably reduces the ability to repeat ALT. So in the late 90s, SLT, selective laser trabeculoplasty, came, became, uh, uh, started to become part of our treatment uh, uh, paradigm. And in SLT, we use larger spots of lower energy, so there's less damage to the trabecular meshwork, theoretically increasing our ability to reutilize the test. So on first treatment, ALT versus SLT is probably pretty similar IOP lowering, but SLT probably allows us to repeat the test more. I think that's fairly clear. Or even in patients who failed as ALT, I think, um, no, I don't think, I'm sure that using SLT in those patients is better than repeating ALT. So at this point in time, very little ALT being done. SLT and derivatives of SLT have now become the treatment of choice in um, trabecular meshwork-based laser treatments. And for progression, what would they consider progression of perimetry or dish changes? Yeah, so that you know they were looking at repeatable changes on visual field or based upon the examiners, you know, the examiners agreeing that there was change. And you, you can think about the subjectivity that goes into, um, into uh, looking at optic nerves. They used flicker chronoscopy, so you know it's flicker looking at optic nerves, and then they were con confirmed on two consecutive visits. So they took some of the variability out, but making sure that two consecutive visits, there was an agreement that there was change in the disc. And on the visual, actually the visual field and parametric criteria was interesting and it brings up another interesting point. There had to be three points on a visual field that were flagged three consecutive times to begin to be considered progression. Now, those of you who have Humphrey software might say to yourself, oh, wait, that sounds familiar. The glaucoma progression analysis. On the glaucoma progression analysis, you get the flag likely progression when three points are flagged three or more consecutive times. So how did that happen? 
Well, Anders Hale, who is the first author on much of the EMGT, certainly the, the, the top clinician on EMGT, is also a big consultant for Zeiss. Now, it doesn't mean we can't use other fields for this, but this was done with Humphrey, the Humphrey Field Analyzer. So the glaucoma progression analysis on your, high, on your Humphrey software came directly out of the EMGT. And as we had one other piece, because it leads into some of these interesting discussions, it's a very sensitive look at detection of progression. Why would they want a very sensitive progression detector? Because they had half their patients were patients diagnosed with glaucoma who weren't being treated. So they wanted real sensitive uh, glaucoma detection, as opposed to oats, which was the other way around. They didn't need it to be so sensitive because the patients didn't even have any uh, manifest glaucoma. These were manifest glaucoma patients. So interesting approach. And once they saw progression, I assume they would treat them. They would treat them, right, in the control group, they would treat them. And in the treatment group, they would treat them more aggressively. Yes. So, it, so the treatment was reduced by about 25%. So when they compared who got treated versus who didn't get treated, what were the results? Yeah, so to backtrack a little on that, not surprisingly, and anybody who's, who manages a lot of glaucoma, you know, although we think about glaucoma and everybody's thinking pressure is 28, 29, 30, that's not the way it works. If you do a lot of glaucoma, those that's not where the pressures usually are. And in the EMGT, the average start pressure is, let me just make sure I'm giving you the right number, was 20.7, um, 20.7. So a lot of these patients did not have high pressures, um, which is kind of interesting. You know, a lot of these patients, the patients in the study mostly had early glaucoma because the bad ones were not, were excluded from the study. So you're starting with um, relatively lower pressures and the treatment, ALT plus betaxel twice a day, lowered the pressure about 25%. So in the treatment group, you got about a 25% loss from an average start pressure of, you know, let's say around 21. And then the results are kind of interesting because remember we're using a very sensitive progression detector, three points only, repeated three times. And what we found was that the, the treatment group had over six years, 43% of those patients progressed. So fairly high number. And in the no treatment group, so the, again, manifest glaucoma, no treatment, 62% progressed over six years. So 19% difference, but additionally, uh, treatment reduced or rather increased the time to progression. So in other words, it took longer for a patient to progress. So there's certainly a clear cut treatment benefit um, in, and not surprising, again, going back to our original premise here, it would be a horror show if it was the other way around, you know, that treatment wasn't shown to be beneficial. Another thing that they showed was each millimeter of pressure reduction reduced the risk of progression by about 
Now that doesn't mean that if you reduce it 10, you're gonna get 100% risk reduction, it doesn't work that way. But in this group, in that, you know, kind of five millimeter, because that's all it was, 20 to 15, each millimeter reduced the risk by about 10%. You know, looking at this trial, 43% of the treated people still progressed that had laser, they had laser or they had eye drops. And that is a sobering number. It is a sobering number, but we also remember it was a very sensitive, um, uh, uh, the glaucoma progression analysis as it's now known and what they used in the study is very sensitive. It's only three points. They don't have to be a cluster of points. They could be any three points within the 54 points in the visual field. So it's a sensitive detection of progression. So it's not surprising that the progression number is relatively high. But yes, it is sober. The bottom line of this study, what do you feel the bottom line is? Yeah, there's a lot, lots of bottom lines to this study. <laughs> um, lowering IOP helps. And every millimeter of pressure, at least in that, you know, that 20 to 15 range, um, each millimeter seems to be associated with about a 10% um, risk reduction. Um, Through exfoliation. Uh, okay. Yeah. Go ahead. The natural history part, which we haven't gotten at too much, exceedingly important in this, because in the natural history part of the study, what we did see um, is that In the control group, the untreated group, the average, and this is an average, the median was a little bit different, but the averages are ones that stick with me. The average patient in the untreated control group progressed at about a rate of a decibel per year. This is untreated control group, about a decibel per year. And if you think about the dynamic range of the visual field, you know, being, you know, 35 dBs or so, that kind of makes you feel reasonably good, most of these patients had small amounts of field loss when we start. The normotensive group within that pool of 126 patients only progressed at about a third of a decibel per year. And that's consistent with the collaborative normotension glaucoma study, um, which was another trial that actually came out before the EMGT. The high tension group progressed at about, a, about one and a third decibels per year. But the exfoliative group progressed at about three decibels per year. And many of the exfoliative patients were excluded from the study because their pressures were so high or they had so much damage to start with. So it again brings home the fact, identify exfoliation early on and treat those patients incredibly aggressively and stay on top of them because it's, it's a blinding disease. And that was an indirect um, outcome that came out of this study. And one of the reasons why it's so important to dilate patients is Absolutely. exfoliation disease. Very hard to find exfoliation. I mean, you can, you know, if you look very carefully at the pupillary rough or see pigmentary changes on gonioscopy, but yeah, you can see it best through a dilated pupil and looking at the surface of the lens. So that was very important. Other things that came out of the EMGT that we haven't mentioned, um, they did look at central corneal thickness, and that was shown just as with oats, but that was important. And they also looked at blood pressure in these patients, and they found that lower blood pressure was an important, lower blood pressure was an important um, 
uh, risk factor for the development of glaucoma, particularly in the patients with lower intraocular pressure. So the hypotension is important in that particular group. And we've seen that across a number of other studies. That's really important. Actually, it was interesting that systemic hypertension was actually protective in the group of, of uh, untreated, in the untreated control group. And, and the reason why? Um, probably perfusion to the optic nerve is, our, is the, you know, what, we, what we think. Um, but you know, perfusion is, is really a complicated matter. We, we've dumbed it down necessarily to blood pressure minus intraocular pressure as regulated by autoregulation. It's probably much more complicated than that. But it is useful to be able to identify that. Well, I thank you for that. Let's move on to the next one where we're looking at to see about normal tension glaucoma. Yeah. Uh, collaborative normal tension glaucoma study, 1998, was started to answer if IOP was or were not, was not involved in normal tension glaucoma. Because at one time, we didn't know if people were normal or low tension glaucoma, some people call it, was lowering IOP helpful. So if you yep. give us some background on this very important. Yeah, I mean, you study. said you said it well. That's that's the background. You know, does IOP matter? You know, we we got more sophisticated in you know the late 80s and 90s and starting to really recognize that there's much more to glaucoma than just high intraocular pressure. We know there's a subset of patients who have normal pressures. You know, whether that's actually a different disease or not is probably even a different another question that's being debated, or is it just you know open angle glaucoma with low pressures? But the question really was, you know, does IOP even matter in this group of patients? Um, and so in the collaborative normal tension glaucoma study, that's what we looked at. It was the evaluation was what's the role of IOP control um, in preventing progression? That was really the question being asked in the collaborative study. Um, and, and in the study, there was nobody with pressure over 24. Right. And that's one of the criticisms of the study, because 24 is a little higher than what we think of as normal tension. But that was it. You're absolutely right. Right. We would maybe like to see it around 18 or lower. Yeah. You know, at least less than 21. You know, right. so up to 24, um, those patients were in the study. So that was kind of a, a little bit different. And how were they treated? Yeah. So the, the treatment, um, I just want to pull up my slides so I don't miss no take your time yeah uh where's my treatment collaborative study i just want to make sure i've got everything on it um but you know the treatment was essentially uh could include surgery and many of the patients had surgery so there was aggressive treatment in patients who showed progression they were treated aggressively so you know that's not typical but I think the biggest thing that comes out of the collaborative study was, again, there was a untreated control. And I think that's the, another beauty of this particular study is that we had some patients that were not treated. Um, and I think it's very important because it told us that in the untreated control group, even in that group, at seven years, only about 50% of them progressed. So it makes me feel better about taking care of normal tensive patients who maybe I can just follow them even without treatment. Um, and, and this study, 
the goal was to lower the pressure 30 percent right and they use either meds ALP or filter or TRAB or a combination of get it down 30%. Right. You know, for those of us who manage glaucoma, when you think of a patient, let's say with a pressure of 18, getting it down 30% is a lot of work. You know, 30% is what? 5.4 off of 18. So to get a patient from 18 down to 12 or 13, is usually gonna take at least certainly more than one medication most times. So this was relatively aggressive treatment in the treatment group. Um, and, and the non-treated progressed at 35%. Right. That was a pretty good progression. Yeah, in 35% at five years, I believe, and you know, 50% at seven years. But the flip side of that is, you know, considering you're not treating them, it's not so terrible. And these are patients with low pressures. And we knew from, and we know from the EMGT that people with normal tension glaucoma tend to progress slowly. I think further evidence since then tells us that some of these patients, we actually knew that then, that some of these patients have field loss close to fixation. So we do have to be careful with those patients, even though they may be progressing slowly on mean deviation, they may have focal defects close to fixation. So we do have to be careful with that. Um, the other thing about IOP lowering in that particular study was that the benefit of IOP lowering was not clearly shown unless you factored out cataract because many of these patients had trabeculectomy and what's one of the, one of the adverse uh, side effects less trabeculectomy is the development of cataract. So a lot of these patients had traps. So a lot of these patients had cataracts. What are cataracts due to visual fields? They affect visual fields. So unless you factored out the cataract, there wasn't a beneficial effect of IOP lowering. Now, if you did factor out the cataract, then it was a benefit, but the patient in real life had a cataract. So you had to do something with that to gain the benefit of IRP lowering and slowing down the progression of visual field loss. So that's important to remember. The other thing to remember besides slow progression in these patients is that um, not surprisingly, there was individual variation in the response to treatment or in the in the risk of progression, and that certain subsets of patients were more apt to progress. And who were they? Females, and my experience, the great majority of my patients are female. Um, but certainly when I look at normal tensive patients, definitely a large number of those patients are female. A history of migraine, so we know that there's vasospastic phenomena in migraine, and my, females get migraines more than males. So those things go hand in hand. And optic disc hemorrhages, patients with optic disc hemorrhages were also more apt to progress. So it told us to look very carefully at certain subsets of patients. And a lot of that came out of the EMGT as well. So there's some overlap between those two. So I love those two studies together because of the untreated control group, particularly telling us you know, to look carefully and individualize our care and also recognize that normal tensile glaucoma um, even untreated, progresses slowly, but again, identify which patients are at greater risk.
one thing that I think all the studies tell us is identify and individualize your care of patients. So, so the bottom line of this study is? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I don't see, when we think about how patients are treated, I don't think we're going to take too many of our normal intensive patients and immediately throw them into a paradigm to lower intraocular pressure by 30% using any means necessary. I'm certainly not throwing these normal intensive cases into trabeculectomies. So I think to me, what it tells me is identify the patients who are most apt to progress, treat them aggressively, but aggressively using medicine or SLT or MIGS procedures, which we now have available to us, probably not trabeculectomy unless they have very progressive disease. And of course we move on to traps, but recognize that some of these patients probably can even be followed without treatment at all. And I know that's heresy to say that we have glaucoma patients who we shouldn't treat, but I think some of these normal intensive cases who might have you know, a single wedge defect or something like that and nothing else and it's not threatening fixation, we might be able to follow them without treatment for a period of time until we see that they are progressing or they're rapidly progressing or they're threatening fixation. Again, heresies to some degree, but I think some, there are some of these patients who we probably, our treatment can be just careful watching. And of course, those patients, we wanna know those patients. You know, I would never do that with somebody who I'm just starting with. I wanna know, I wanna to get to, you know, I wanna be past the courtship period and into the marriage period with that patient and know that they show up and they understand. And I think we all should have that in our glaucoma patients. I never wanna treat on the first visit unless the pressure is, you know, through the, through the roof and they have advanced disease. But in the majority of cases, you know, you're usually gonna see them three or four times before you start treatment. You get a baseline IOP, baseline feel, baseline OCT. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromicel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromicel technology. The All Eyes Visual VRP is a portable vision testing platform that includes visual fields, acuity, color vision testing, pupillometry, and extraocular motility. The visual leverages virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and augmented technologies to enable eye care providers to test for and monitor common eye diseases. Visit alleyes.com for more information. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. OIE Broadcasting is the emerging leader in social media. We use scientific entertainment to drive more patients into your office. Visit OIEbroadcasting.com and sign up today. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat.
es natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.